I'm really excited to be here. And um, this, first, this first hour, uh, just uh, this time, I wanted to share a little bit uh, about me and uh, my personal testimony, my family, uh, not because the messenger is all that important, because uh, one of the humbling things about being called to preach the gospel is God really likes to work through cracked pots so that his glory shines through. Uh, and so any of those who are called in Christian leadership are really called to the very lowest level, the, the, the lowest post. Um, so, but I do want to share a little bit about it just because um, our family our family is sort of a living metaphor uh, and picture for what, uh, what I want to come and talk to you about today with orphan care. And I want to share with you a little bit about my journey uh, because of kind of where I've started and where God has me today. Um, I grew up in San Jose. I went to Prospect High School, uh, not too far from here. And uh, we got some Prospect Panthers, all right, in the house, Westmont, come on. Let's get real, let's keep it real today. Um, Prospect, all right. Uh, and um, so I grew, up, I grew up here in the, in the Bay Area, and, uh, and my, um, my home life, I, I grew up in a divorced home, and uh, back when I did it, it wasn't popular, it wasn't cool, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't you know, there wasn't a lot of people with, with divorced homes. Uh, I was very unique in my neighborhood, and so every, every week I would go live with my mom, uh, somewhere locally, and then with my dad and stepmom, sort of at home base, which is which is where I grew up in, in West San Jose, and uh, so that really shaped that really shaped me a lot. One of the things that it showed me was this: my mom was not a believer, and um, and lived her life in the Silicon Valley. Amazing woman, I love my mom, um, but I got to see really clearly every other week a really distinct picture of a of a non-Christian home and kind of what what she was pursuing and how she was pursuing it, how she handled joys, how she handled sorrows. And then I got to see my dad and stepmom who were, who were followers of Jesus Christ. And I just got to witness that as a child from age four uh, all, the way, all the way on, every other week seeing a Christian home and a, and a non-Christian home. And, um, and what I didn't know at the time was this, that God was, God was teaching me um, my whole life, just kind of watching those two pictures. And I would go to church on my Christian home week, uh, which was over at Venture. It was called Los Gatos Christian Church back in the day. Massive church. Um, and then on the off weeks, I would sit at home and I'd watch cartoons on Sunday morning. So which do you think I thought was better as a kid? The off week. I didn't want to go to church. I wanted to watch cartoons. That was my, that was my choice. And... Um, so I grew, up, I grew up going to church, but not really that involved, and, um, and frankly thinking it was kind of boring. I thought there were some good points being made here and there, but it was just kind of boring to me generally. And uh, one, of the, one of the bonuses that my dad let me be involved in was not only did we go to two services on a Sunday morning, but we got to go back at night for triple, triple bonus night, one more service. And that, uh, that didn't make me happy, especially as I got into my teen years, I thought, Man, haven't we done enough church for a lifetime? You know, we've already done a couple hours in the morning. And, uh, and it was on a Sunday night service. I was a junior in high school, 17 years old. A guy by the name of Ken Poor was speaking. Ken was a guy that helped start Hume Lake Christian Camps. And uh, years later, as God would have it, um, I got to have Ken Poor's grandson come through my youth group. And we, we became close friends. We became close friends with the family. But Ken Poor was there, and I was setting up for another boring Sunday night at church. And he basically gave this message. He said, some of you in this room 
are sitting on a fence and you want to get the best of what the world has to offer and you want to get the best of what God has to offer. And it was one of those moments where I just, we were in a big church, hundreds of people, and I was like, who, who told this guy that that was me? He was talking directly to me. And it was kind of surprising to me because that was my exact state. And, um, and what he said was this. He said, uh, he basically challenged people in that room that night to make a decision. And what happened is God, God sort of pulled a veil away from my eyes and I found myself walking forward to go get baptized. I'd made a decision to follow Christ as a child. Um, but I felt, I felt drawn by the Lord to come and get baptized, be public about it. And uh, I always look back at my baptism at that church as something really powerful because there's nothing in my flesh that would have desired to get up in front of a couple of thousand people and do anything at all, much less humbly get dunked underwater, come up and, and have this testimony time. Um, so that was me at age 17. And um, probably youth pastors had told me to do this for a long time leading up to this. I don't think I came up with this, but I had a strong sense. No one specifically told me that day, but I had a strong sense of this, that I should really read my Bible. And so I committed on that day that I went forward to get baptized, that I would read my Bible every single day for one year. And that one year utterly changed my life. So I made a decision for Christ as a small child. My dad always encouraged me to read the Bible. My stepmom encouraged me to read the Bible. They brought me to church. I guarantee you, my youth pastors taught me to read the Bible. I didn't read the Bible. At age 17, I go forward, I get baptized, I read the Bible. And that one year of, of life for me just exponentially changed my outlook. I found myself regularly reading something in the morning that later on that afternoon an exact situation would show up and I began to realize that the Bible is sufficient for teaching me about how to live this life. Not only that, I would read something in the morning and I would begin to look for ways that God might be showing me and, and it would be for someone else. Someone else would come with a question that directly tied, I had the answer because I read it that morning in my Bible. And I'd say, oh, that's right here in the Bible. Da, 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 da. How did you know that? Not because I have a great memory, it's because I read it the mo in, in, in the morning. So that began to shape something that still holds true today, and that is, I really believe in, this, in the sufficiency of Scripture. We started a church called Neighborhood Bible Church about 11 years ago, um, and uh, we put the word Bible in the title because we just wanted to be really clear which God we were talking about. We wanted to be really clear what we were going to do on a Sunday morning. We're going to open our Bible, and we're going we're gonna to learn from it and, and read it. Um, let me tell you about my family a little bit. Uh, one of the things that's kind of interesting is um, you may be sitting in the room right now with your future spouse. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Ew. I hope not. I hope it's someone not in this room. Uh, I went to a place called Camp Hammer as an elementary student, and there were 150 elementary-aged kids in this picture. And I am a little third grader in the picture. And there's, a, there's two girls in the front row. One girl is this little cute blonde wearing a sailor outfit. Now, this is the 70s, so I guess you could pull off wearing sailor outfits to camp. I don't know what that was about exactly. But she was clean and neat and prim and proper, this little cutie in the front row. And then about six spaces over is this little girl sitting, sitting kind of cross-legged with her hands like this, and she's got pigtails, and she's got this dirty face. And she wasn't on my radar at all in third grade. That was my wife. 
I didn't know it at the time. We went to a massive church. I only went there every other week. I didn't meet her until high school, but we laugh all the time that I had this crush on Sailor Girl, you know? And so once in a while, I'll ask my wife, what would have happened if I married Sailor Girl? Like, how horrible would my life might have been? But I got, I got the little one with the dirty face, and now our kids, I mean, they're, they're just like my wife, and, and they're a perfect fit for me. So God knew what he was doing. Um, let me show you a picture of my family. I'm pushing this button to the right. Is that correct? There it is. Um, so this is, this is our family. We never, ever look like this, by the way. Uh, we have friends who own a photo studio. And so just recently, I think this was taken right before Christmas card season, because our last Christmas card, as you can imagine, we're kind of busy. So our last Christmas card is, I think, from 2011. And so my friends kept saying, can you please take a new family picture? And, you know, to get everyone to hold still, have their eyes open and not be blurry is really challenging. So some friends of ours said, hey, let's go and get some shots. And so magically, he got us all looking in one direction. Um, But that's Becky to my uh, whatever side that is, right? Um, And... uh, and we met in, uh, again, in my, my junior year of high school. And so we've, um, we've, we've, we got married quite young. We were, we were both, uh, she had just turned 21, I had just turned 23. And, um, and one of the things about, about Becky is, um, so we had, just really quick, we had four biological ch- uh, children. Uh, and they were born in the exotic location of uh, Good Samaritan Hospital, uh, not too far from here. And then we, uh, we adopted from, uh, from China, and then we adopted from Ethiopia, and then we adopted from China again. So I'll kind of walk through those a little bit. But one of the things about my wife was in middle school, um, she really had a clear sense from God that she was to adopt children. And she had this vision sort of like given to her, not in a weird, super spiritual way, but just this mental image of being at a dinner table and looking around her dinner table and seeing 10 children with different colored faces looking back at her. Now, as I dated her and we began to get serious as boyfriend and girlfriend, I knew that about her. And I always really admired that about her. I thought, wow, what what a noble goal. What a great thing that is. And as we even started to consider marriage and then got engaged, I still thought, wow, what a neat thing for you. I don't know where the disconnect was. I've been hit on the head many times with my extreme sports that I do. I think there was just a a major disconnect that this would involve me if we got married. So we get married and uh, and we we begin to have children by God's grace and... and, um, and after our third child, so we had two boys and a girl, and we, we just said, you know, we just put our needs or our desires before the Lord. We said, God, we'd sure love to see what it was like, what it would be like to, to have a boy and a girl uh, biologically, and he blessed us with that. So we had two boys and a girl. And then um, it was soon after that that we began to pursue adoption. And um, I remember, here's, here's how it went, and I just, I say this just sort of out of my own humility, but... Uh, you know, my, my wife began to, to nudge me towards wanting to pursue adoption, and, and, uh, and I was really resistant to it. 
And I thought, man, I really love having kids. I love having children. I want a big family, but that sounds really scary. It sounds like a big mountain. It sounds like doing your taxes times 15, you know, with the, the paperwork and, and all these things that have to go on. And I was filled with all the doubts and concerns that all of us would probably feel. You know, would I, would I love a child that isn't biologically mine, that doesn't share my blood and DNA? Would I love that child the same as my other children? And so I wrestled with these different things. And um, she said, would you just go to this conference? There's an all-day conference about adoption at, at Hillside EV, EV Free Church. Would you just go with me to that? I said, yeah, absolutely, I'll go. And I don't remember almost a single thing that happened that day from the front in terms of speakers, but here's what God did to me in the very first session. I was sitting in a seat kind of like you are right now, and God nudged me this way. He said, I am calling your family to adopt. Get out in front and lead. You see, what had been happening is my wife was the one beating the drum of adoption and saying, let's do this, let's do this, let's get after this. Man, there's kids that need a family and we could provide that for them. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that sounds kind of good. Good for you. That sounds great. Have fun with that. And in stepping in front and leading, here's what it meant. I am still not the expert of, of adoption in our family. That's my wife. She's gifted and passionate and well-studied and well-researched. Um, but getting out in front and lead meant, meant this, that my wife didn't have to sort of drag me along and that I got on board with what God was doing with us. We looked on a world map, we looked at all the orphanages in the world and the country that had uh, by far the worst situation was the country of Georgia. They were a former, former Russian state. And in the country of Georgia, think about this for a second. Like let this settle into your heart. 50% of children in orphanages in the country of Georgia around that time were dying. So half of the orphans in Georgia were dying. Then we began to talk to people who were on the ground in Georgia and they said, oh no, 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 no. That's the government statistic. That's the government putting a good face on it. We said, well, what's the real number? They said the real number is far closer to 70%. So when we pause our busy lives long enough to consider that reality, it still gives me chills to think about this. I thought, man, no matter how much of a screw up I might be as a parent, no matter how many different ways I might mess up international adoption, I can give a better life to a child than death. So we began to pursue adoption from Georgia. One of the things that I tell people before they go adopt internationally or domestically or enter foster care is this. It's a little bit like a roller coaster. How many of you like roller coasters? Yeah, I love roller coasters. Um, adoption is like a roller coaster. You, you get in, you strap in, you're now committed to this thing. There's some highs, there's some lows, there's some rushes, there's some really boring parts where you're standing in line and whatever else. And the other thing about roller coasters sometimes is people throw up. And I say, if you're gonna throw up, try not to throw up on your, on your family. You know, don't turn and throw up on the person you're sitting next to, turn the other way. So there's fights and there's disagreements and there's hurt and there's anxiety and there's fear and there's all these things as you enter into this, this whole notion of taking on a life into your home and opening your home in a really significant way. So one of the things Americans love is their rights, right? Like we love our rights. And, uh, and when you go to, to do international adoption, you relinquish those rights. It's two sovereign nations trying to figure something out. 
And so they tell you right up front, you're gonna be invested in this and you have no rights to see it through all the way. It may change partway through. And sure enough, we were well into the process. We had done fundraising, we had done all kinds of paperwork. We'd invited the government in to look at our home and make sure that it was okay. And all these kinds of things went on. And right about the time we were about to get placed with a child, so matched with a child, the country of Georgia decided to shut its doors to all international adoption. You know why? Because they can. And so they just, they just said, nope, we're all done. Not gonna happen anymore. And in a three week span, that happened. And then my wife uh, fairly miraculously got pregnant with our fourth biological child. So in that one sort of month period, our lives shifted completely and we said, oh, okay, I guess it's God will, God's will that we have another biological child. And that's when our daughter Tegan was born. After Tegan was born, some time passed and my wife said, hey, let's, let's begin to pick up adoption again. Georgia was still closed. She had always heard about China's one child policy about girls filling up orphanages. And that was one of the things that was stuck in her head. We began to look into that and we realized there was a whole special needs program in China. China does this very, very well where they take special needs children and uh, the line for healthy children, even to this day, it's like it would go around this whole city block twice, right? So you do all your paperwork and you sit there and you wait, I want, I want a 14 month old healthy baby. Okay, get in line. That's how long the line is. Uh, my wife has done nannying for Down syndrome children and all kinds of things. I think she is uniquely gifted. And so we began to pursue um, special needs. And special needs is a wild deal because what it does is it hands you this piece of paper with about 125 special needs. And it says, put a check mark next to the, um, next to the special need that you're willing to accept. So parents, think about this for a second. When you have a child biologically and they come out and they're missing a digit, what you do is you receive that child and you say, God must have wanted me to have a child with nine fingers and not with 10 fingers, praise God. If they come out and they have all 10 fingers and all 10 toes, you may have never thought about this, but praise God, they have all 10 fingers and all 10 toes. If they don't have a birthmark that covers their entire face, praise God. If they have one that covers their whole face, praise God. But now imagine, going through a checklist of special needs and saying, what do I want to invite into my life? What do I want, what do I think I can handle? And so we begin to pray over these special needs and think, we already have four biological children, what would it look like to have a child with one leg? What kind of challenges might that present? What could we do to make that happen? What about learning disabilities? What about internal things? How many times could we go to a hospital in a week to, to care for this child? And so it became this really huge exercise in faith, right? To sit there and, and even research. I didn't even know what half the terms meant. So we would go and research these things and pray over these things. And so we submitted this document with all these special needs and it was a massive, massive faith step to, to, to submit this document. And here's what happened. We got placed with a child. Um, oh, there's all of our kids together. You can imagine as we walk around town, people think that, um, we're like the junior United Nations program, you know, touring the Silicon Valley or something. We get all kinds of, of crazy comments. Um, we had a guy, uh, LDS stands for Latter-day Saints, so it's, it's the Mormons. And we had a guy at Costco, I was with some handful of my kids, and he was in line behind me, and he leans forward, he goes, LDS? 
And I said, oh no, I'm trying to quit. Um, and uh, we, get, we get mistaken uh, for a small cult. I mean, all kinds, it's, it's really bizarre, but it is fun because we, um, we enjoy talking to people about it. But this is an orphanage in China, and uh, this is a powerful picture for me because I look at this and what, what you see in this picture are five, five children, five orphans. Um, but what I see is I see my daughter. And uh, today's a really providential day to be here and talking about this because um, today is Cassie's birthday. And um, here she is today. Um, so her adoption day was her birthday at two years old. So today, right now, marks the 10-year anniversary exactly of the day that we signed a paper committing to, to be her parents for the rest of her life. And, uh, you know, there's a, it's a hard thing, but um, you think about this. There's this great line in the Stephen Curtis Chapman song that talks about this, that for the first two years of her life, actually for the first just one year, I guess, her first birthday, uh, it was probably marked in some tiny way, but there's a bunch of nannies caring for way too many kids in this orphanage, and a special needs orphanage is extra challenging. And we got to celebrate her second birthday in a really big way. Um, we had a cake at the hotel, and we just did this big thing. And as you can imagine now, birthdays in our family are a really big deal, and there's a lot of brothers and sisters um, to, to call out <clears throat> and just celebrate. And they say, this life's important. And uh, what's going to go on with Cassie the rest of her life is she'll never have a birthday that goes unnoticed and uncelebrated. Um, let me fast forward some years. A little bit of gray in my hair now. And uh, this is in the capital city of Ethiopia. And uh, this time around, we thought, you know what? Um, I, think that, I think we should get two, two children. And uh, as we move forward through the paperwork process, what we realized was kids who are HIV positive in an Ethiopian orphanage have a very low life expectancy. And yet people who are HIV positive in America because of the advancements in medication can lead a really normal life. It takes some extra care, it takes some extra money, but, um, but it's doable. As we pursued adopting these two little guys, um, we were well into the process when we really felt this strong urge to change up our home study and be open to and receive two HIV positive children. And, um, and as we did that, again, a huge faith step to just say, God, we're trusting you. We're trusting that these kids need a home. We're trusting that this home is the one you want to use to provide for them. And so, um, and so we changed up our home study, our paperwork and all of that. And then again, just in the wild topsy-turvy way that God works, um, I think we got the fastest placement. A placement is you turn all your paperwork in and then the agency says, okay, we're matching you up with these children. And, uh, 
and our placement should have taken somewhere between four months and six months, and I think we got our placement in like four weeks. And the agency said, this never, ever happens. And they're looking for people, they're longing for people to adopt the harder cases, older children, deeper special needs, um, HIV positive. So they handed us two healthy, happy, 14-month-old uh, babies. And, um, and this, is, this is Eli and Kaya, and they're now, um, they're now seven years old. Uh, oops, and they look like that. Uh, again, not most of the time, because <laughs> they're holding still in this picture, and that, that just rarely happens. Um, and uh, they're the best of buds. And then just <clears throat> not so long ago, in fact, it was two years ago on Easter uh, that, we, that we came home, um, we decided to adopt again. And that's Tate, the boy, and Everly is our girl. And um, this was an interesting one because, uh, you know, when you follow, <laughs> when you follow the Lord, um, he leads you to places that other people just don't understand. And when we began to feel the nudge to adopt um, some HIV positive kids, guess who had a hard time with that? Our family, our extended family, who's been very supportive of our adoptions all along. But you can imagine they have children. They began to have questions. Well, doesn't that put my child in danger? And can we ever hang out with you again? And all kinds of things. Um, and when we crossed the threshold from seven kids to adopting two more and have nine kids, we left behind more people. <laughs> uh, I had one very close family member say, you're making a huge mistake. And I said, well, could you be more direct or more blunt? Because I'm not sure what the message is, you know? And, um, and, and they just said, yeah, you're, you're just making a huge mistake. And I said, well, you know, Hey, this isn't a democracy. <laughs> like this is this is a decision between my wife and I and and God. And um, and I said, you know, really, what what happened is we just found your threshold. Your threshold was seven kids. Some people think that four is way too many. Some people think seven is okay, but eight is not okay. And I said, um, I said, you know, God's God's calling us to this. And she didn't have the same level of trust in our savior that, that I do. She doesn't know Jesus. And so it was, a, it was a weird, hard conversation. But it was easy to leave behind because I was so clear that God was calling us to do this. And so I say it was easy. It was challenging because, again, you want your family's support. You want your family around you. But, um, but we've, had, we've had many Christians around us um, not get it. And that's okay. Uh, God calls you to places and you follow. And if it's Turns out that you look around and you're standing on water and you're not really supposed to be standing on water. You get your eyes back on Jesus quick because you'll sink. So this is Everly and Tate. And um, our challenge back and forth with this was one week we would, you know, I would think that doing two more is a great idea. And uh, my wife didn't think it was such a great idea. And then the next week it would be reversed. She'd say, man, we should really do two. And I said, I don't think we should do two. I think we should do one more. And back and forth we went. And, um, and God, God led us and opened the door uh, for them. And here's, here's our three, uh, three China-born kiddos today. That's at Capitola. You'll, you'll appreciate how Cassie's sitting if you've ever been to China. Um, she's, got the, she's got the China squat down pat. It's awesome, um, and, uh, and again, I'm gonna move on from talking about my kids because I'll just, I'll just get teary. It's just powerful to talk about this. Um, 
I want to share with you about our church journey a little bit because, um, because what I'm really here to talk to you about today is this, is to consider what it would look like or what it does look like um, if, if there's really an orphan care culture at, at churches. And um, when, I, when I helped start Neighborhood Bible Church 11 years ago, we didn't set out to do two of the greatest things God has accomplished in the last 11 years. Um, what we knew is we should preach the Bible. We knew we should gather on Sunday mornings like we're doing right now. We knew we should meet in smaller groups. We call them community groups. I think you guys call them community groups. We didn't set out to be a cutting edge church to try new stuff. Uh, we didn't feel tied to, to the past and just doing it the same old way. We just opened the Bible and said, Man, there's a lot of freedom of how to be a church, but there are a couple of essentials that we're gonna do. And um, two of the greatest things that God has accomplished in our church, no one on our team, certainly not me as the lead pastor, came up with this, designed it, drew it up, and could receive any glory from it. It was just a work of God. And one of those is the fact that right now, our, our website says this on the very front page because it's that important to us. It says three services, two languages, one church. We have a Spanish and English speaking church. And this morning, the first two services will be done in English. Our third service will be done completely in Spanish. When we gather at Easter and Christmas times, we usually do the service bilingual. And the reason for that is quite simple. God chose to put me next to John Muir Middle School. We share a fence line with John Muir Middle School. And that neighborhood, unlike Valley Church in Cupertino, which has a high uh, Asian and Indian population, he put me right next to a middle school that did their graduation services, both English and Spanish. So a ton of Spanish speakers right around a few mile radius of our church. Now here's the thing. I grew up, no joke, thinking I was Mexican. <laughs> now, you'll forgive me because here's why I thought that. My mom was born in Mexico City. All of my mom's side is completely fluent in Spanish, and I like Mexican food. So to a, to a young, you know, up through about elementary school, that's good enough. Like, that basically meant I was Mexican. I was utterly shocked. I'm not sure how old I was, but I was utterly shocked that I was not Mexican when I found that out. Utterly shocked. So I know enough Spanish to be dangerous. I can sound really authentic for about two sentences, and then people go, oh, this guy gets it, and so they just just start speaking rapidly. Um, and I don't understand the rest of it. But I was in this neighborhood and I kept bumping into people. I would, I constantly, I live in that neighborhood, I shop in that neighborhood, I, I, I take meetings by going on walks, so I bump into the mailman. I'm like Mr. Rogers of old. You know, I just, I talk to anyone I can in the neighborhood. And I kept meeting people who speak Spanish. And so I would speak to them a little bit in my authentic way. And they'd realize this guy's kind of adult. He doesn't understand much Spanish. So we'd, our communication would slow down. They would show up at the church. And here's what they would say. They'd say, Dave, we, we love your kindness. Thank you for welcoming us. But we can't keep up with the language. And I get it. Because when I go to Mexico and, and I try to keep up with Spanish, my brain hurts after about five minutes. I strain and try. I really try to listen, but it's too hard. So I began to pray literally in the first year, 2006, I began this prayer. I said, God, would you please either A, supernaturally gift me with Spanish. I know you can do that. I'll put a Spanish book under my pillow and you can just let it soak in. 
Or would you bring the right person to come be a teammate and minister to all these people who speak Spanish? Would you do that? So I began to pray. I didn't even share that prayer with anyone except my wife. In year eight, a guy by the name of Angel came. He was a sportscaster for Telemundo. Goal! That guy. Uh, so, so he would do TV, and, and he was just this really gregarious guy. And fast forward uh, these last few years, he has, um, he has become our, our third service pastor. Um, I got to marry his daughter uh, two, two summers ago. I got to go with him to his home city of Bogota, Colombia, last year with my son. Our families have just knit like this. He's an incredible brother in the Lord that leads an incredible ministry family. And now we minister to all of our Spanish speakers around. And, and all the time I'm bumping into people. Again, I like Mexican food, so I frequent a lot of taquerias. I'm always inviting people to our church, whether they speak English or Spanish. And when he first came on, I told him this, our elder team, we said, we're not interested. We don't think this is wrong, but we don't think this is ideal. We said, we're not interested in renting out or even giving out our facility to a different language group. And then we just kind of high five each other once a year or re-sign a contract once a year. We want to be in relationship. We want to figure out what does it look like to have two different cultures that merge together and get past the language barrier. They get past all the cultural differences. And as you can imagine, Latin American culture and Silicon Valley culture clash a lot. When my mom goes down to Mexico and we visit family, it takes her four days to unwind from the fact that if you are within two hours of the stated time, you're on time in Mexico, right? So we would have a family meal at the restaurant they run down there at six o'clock. And at nine o'clock, we're starting to order and eat our food. And my mom, the first couple days, is like steam coming out of her ears, right? Because, because we're late, we're late. And that's not true, we're right on time. <laughs> so, so that's one of the things God's done at Neighborhood Bible Church that's just been incredible and, and challenging. It's not all easy, but it's really, really good. One of the things we have going on, um, regularly as we have live translating happening. So I think that's happening right here in this room as well. Uh, but we have, we have Spanish speakers that are sitting there listening through their headset and they just get to participate. And then we do it vice versa. We have some English speakers that go to the Spanish service. It's really a great thing. Here's the second thing. The second thing is that our church, the things God has done in the adoption sort of orphan care at our church has been unbelievable. And here's what's gone on for 11 years. I have preached at least one time a year. I think most, probably up until year maybe eight, it was one time a year on Orphan Care Sunday in November. I would preach a sermon from God's word calling us as Christians to just reclaim our rightful place of leading the way in caring for the most vulnerable people in our city. And in the meantime, our family was growing and people got to have sort of a front row seat of a local pastor at a small church. One of the beauties of being at a place for a long time, and this has been an answer to prayer, I said, God, just leave me in a place long enough that people get past the honeymoon phase and I get past the honeymoon phase with them. And they could just see my life and, and I, we can all just be regular people and just be saints together and not be this weird, you know, sort of thing. And um, so, so they got to see a very average, regular family adopt children into their home and they got to just sort of see the process and be involved in the process. And what happened over time was this, you know, the Bible says that you plant in one season and you always harvest in another season. That's a, it's a law we see in nature, but it's a spiritual truth as well. And so for years, we just, we just preached on this and we just talked about this. 
and uh, many people were sponsoring kids through World Vision, through Compassion International. Uh, all kinds of different things were happening. But late 2014, I went to our elders. I said, guys, I said, I just feel really compelled that we take an entire month in the month of January of 2015 and, and I get four Sundays to just really talk about orphan care. And I said, I know it's a big ask. That's one-twelfth of our sermons this year is to, is to spotlight this. And so we prayed about it, and they gave the green light. And in, um, in 2015, we had Orphan Care Month. And what happened was this. Uh, there were some groups that formed that summer. One of the follow-ups that we do, my wife and I have led in our, in our living room for years, just a little six-week study called Considering Adoption. And it's sort of a safe place for people to voice those kinds of questions like, you know, I don't want to say this out loud because I feel bad, but do you, can you love a person of another race the same way you do your own kid? Can you, how do they get along? Do your biological kids feel cheated? All kinds of stuff. Um, and and we, would just, we would just run that group. But what happened after Orphan Care Month was we ran a rather large one at our church because a lot of people had response. Um, we had a woman come in, <laughs> we had a woman come in and she said, She's kind of a loud woman. She said, I don't even know why I'm here. I'm never going to adopt. I'm never going to do foster care. Guess what she's doing today? She's a foster parent. <laughs> she's had some really difficult placements. I love seeing Heather. She's worshiping right now at Neighborhood Bible Church. I love seeing Heather and once in a while saying, what was it you were never going to do again? I forget. I just I completely forgot what that was. Can you tell me? Um... Here's what else happened is that summer, um, a guy that I had been praying with for years named Philip Pattison um, was leading a small local church in South San Jose and we had gathered, there's about six or eight pastors that gather in my office every Wednesday and we've been doing it for years and years and years and what we're doing is we're just praying for revival in the city. We're just praying that God's glory would, would shine. We're just praying that churches would do well at lifting up the name of Jesus. We're just praying that the name on the back of the jersey, you know, whatever our little silly church name is, wouldn't matter that much. That we would just, that we just really relish the glory of God and that God, we need you. We're desperate for you. That's all we ever did. We just came and prayed for one hour. We didn't talk about our programs. We didn't talk about how we were doing any of that. We just prayed. And what's fascinating is in the, in the over-generosity of God, out of that spilled this idea and some relational connections. And Philip, uh, unbeknownst to me, had begun the, foster, um, the, the process to become a foster dad with his wife. And he approached me, he said, hey Dave, you're, you're an old man. And I said, thank you very much. Uh, I'm about 10 years older than Philip. And he said, would you mentor me? He said, you know, you've been a pastor and, and I just love to meet with you. And I said, sure, why don't we learn from each other, right? Because if you're humble enough, you can learn from anyone. So I said, I have things to learn from you. You have things to learn from me. Yeah, let's get together. I didn't know at the time, but several times he was asking me questions because we had walked through this. And he was asking me sort of these subtle questions um, about taking children into your home. I didn't know he was doing it at the time. He didn't reveal that to me. Um, but, uh, but that friendship formed, and he was, he was taking huge steps of faith with his wife to enter into the foster care world. And their church invited um, a county worker out uh, to speak at their church. And they said, let's rally our tiny church around this one cause of foster care in the Silicon Valley. And the, the county worker came out, shared with their church, very much like this, about similar size and everything. And she talked to Philip 
and this woman, Becky, afterwards, and she said, you know, it's great that one church in the county is excited about getting involved in foster care, but what we really need is a coalition of churches, tons of churches, to solve this crisis that's happening. Thank you very much, and she left. And that sort of planted this idea in Philip's head. He goes, a coalition of churches? I don't even know what that means. And he's like, I'm from Florida. I don't have connections here. What could this look like? And what happened was those two approached me and they said, hey, Dave, we know you're big in the international world, you know, kind of adoption. Would you be willing to come on this team and think through what it would look like to radically change the equation in Santa Clara County around foster care? Because right now there are hundreds and hundreds of children that tonight will go to sleep without a dad, without a mom that, that is in their life and that is caring for them. And so we would all look at this and say, that's not the government's job. They're not equipped to do that. People, individuals aren't meant to grow up in institutions. We're meant to grow up in homes. And we ought to all have a problem with that. Not as Christians, just as human beings, right? So we thought, what would it look like if, if instead of a waiting list of, of kids over here, there was a waiting list of families that were pre-approved by the county, that were gospel motivated, that were waiting and ready, that the moment a kid came out of an abusive situation and was removed from that home, there'd be a family just like that. That the moment that mom or dad gets incarcerated and put in jail, that they don't have to put them in a county basement and leave them there uh, not well cared for, but rather they're received into a loving and stable home. Um, so we started Foster the Bay that fall. And uh, I'm gonna share a little bit more about that next hour where you can hear that. But what's been really incredible is to look back on it and think about this, that um, at our church we always had this phrase. We would always say, God, would you stir in our hearts would you open us up to allow for, for, for one more? Like we believe, God, that there's room for one more child at this church to be adopted. And when I say that we'd make room for it, that means we'll make room in our, in our nursery, in our children's program, for a child who might come from a hard place and tends to hit people like Rocky Balboa. And we have to deal with that. We have to figure that out. We have room in our minivans and we have room in our houses. We will make room. We will make room in our budgets for one more child. And one more child and one more child and one more child. You know what happens when 11 years of one more child happens? Um, I made a list of just some of the ones, but the whole idea of orphan care at Neighborhood Bible Church isn't sort of a nameless, faceless thing. Geo, Jaden, Elizabeth, Isaac, Keon, Valeria, Alma, Joe, Sarah, Jacob, Fernanda, Myra, another Joe, Brian, and several others I can't list legally because they're in foster care and I don't want to just, you know, sort of trample on their story. And those aren't my kids. Those are just people in our congregation. We're not that big of a congregation. When we rolled out Foster the Bay that fall, Neighborhood Bible Church was one of five churches, so we were sort of the guinea pig. We said, let's Let's sort of make all the mistakes on ourselves and then figure out how to bring this to other churches. And in a church that already had lots of foster care, lots of adoption already going on, we prayed as elders, God, there's room for one more here. Like we will, we will step up and we will, we will surround that family that might, you know, if you would bless us with one more family that would be willing 
to open their home and open their lives to be a foster parent, we, we will come around them, we will support them. And so we rolled this out and the model that you're gonna see is um, we really want one foster family and then four support friends or support families around that one family because it's really, really hard. So we cast a vision for Foster the Bay at our church in November of 2015 and much to my utter amazement, this shows my lack of faith, much to my utter amazement, we had four families step forward that morning to say we want to become foster families. What that meant is we immediately needed 16 families to come around and support those families. It was a huge ask, it was a huge burden on the one hand, but a massive joy on the other hand. Two of the families that stepped into foster care um, were close friends of mine. I didn't really even know that was rolling around their hearts and minds but they were asked in a very clear way and they said yes to what God was saying to them. And today, um, all four of those either have kids, have had kids and are awaiting more placements or are waiting for their first placement. Um, so it's been, it's been an incredible thing uh, at, at our church to have a front row, um, kind of a front row seat to, to all of this and, and watch it happen. Um, and so, Again, I'm gonna share more about Foster the Bay in just a minute, but my role at, at, at Foster the Bay is to go around to churches. I'm part of a church partnership team. And just to go around to churches and to, to put out the call to say, would, you know, would a congregation be able to raise up one foster family? And the answer is, we don't know, that's God's call. We can't arm wrestle people into the faith, right? We can't and we shouldn't try. Um, you can get a headlock on someone and make them sign a commitment card, but that's really kind of nonsense. It has to be a work of the Lord to unveil people's eyes to see spiritual truth. So it is with adoption and with foster care. We can't make people do foster care. We can't make them do adoption. But we can put out the call and invite people into that. Um, I don't know if you're used to question and answer, but I thought it'd be fun. And this is a, this is a different setting in this first hour. Um, I, I'm gonna share one more thought before we, before we break, but Anyone have any questions or, uh, or any comments about that or anything on my face I should wipe off or? Okay. Let me share this thought with you. Um, people ask us often, um, why, why we did all this effort. Uh, in fact, this was kind of funny. We died. Um, we're not independently wealthy. I always say if you're pastoring correctly, you shouldn't be wealthy. Um, I, I worked at a bank uh, to help put myself through San Jose Christian College, and I remember one of my coworkers, she goes, what are you studying to be? And I said, I'm studying to be a pastor. She goes, what's that? I'm like, well, it's like one who preaches the Bible and leads a church, and she goes, oh, okay, I mean, zero context. And then right after I said that, she goes, there's some pretty good money in that. I'm like, well. <laughs> Not if you're doing it right. You know, the, the televangelists have some good money. You know, touch the screen right here. I said, but no, it's not good money in that. Like, not in this life. That's not really the end goal of, of becoming a pastor. Um, but people, uh, you know, adoption costs a lot of money. And just by the sheer fact that we live in the Silicon Valley, uh, people always ask, my wife works. I say, we have nine kids. You think my wife works? Yes, she works. But do you mean outside the home? No, she doesn't. She doesn't have a job that pays, uh, that, that pays a wage. And so 
Um, and so you're asking this question, how is it that a pastor is living in the Sultan Valley on one income with nine kids? Um, it's the grace of God. It's the grace of God and it's something that uh, Hudson Taylor's biography in high school impacted me greatly. Hudson Taylor was a man who took the gospel into China. And he would let God know his need, first and foremost. And God would be the one lining up appointments to meet his every need, whether that was food at the last possible second or whatever it might be. And we have just a host of stories that show God is with us. And by not communicating the need out loud, what we know is God is at work in our lives. Because you see, if I were to say right now, hey, we're really struggling, we've got nine kids, we live in the Silicon Valley, I'm a pastor, Christians might say, can I give you five bucks? You know, can I help you out a little bit, <laughs> right? This poor guy. <laughs> but if we just say, God, we trust you'll meet our needs, and you have us here, and we'll be here for as long as you would have us here, um, God provides these needs in supernatural ways. And you know what that does to my heart and my faith? It grows it by leaps and bounds. When my wife and I purposed in our heart to adopt two more children, do you know how many people on this planet knew that we were considering that? Zero. Not a soul knew we were doing that. And I remember exactly where we were. We had taken our kids to a birthday party. We were sitting there waiting for them at a Starbucks. And we made the decision, today's the day we start saving for our next adoption. And in the next about six weeks, again, no one has known about this. In the next six weeks, thing after thing after thing begins to happen. Little small ways. My wife had bought some things for one of our kids for their birthday. And a woman called her. Who does this? She bought it online from someone in some other state. This person called her and said, you know what? Um, I just felt compelled to not charge you, so I've refunded your money. It was like $30. You know what we did? We just got on our knees and praised God. We said, God, you're in this. And so thing after thing, unexplainable. No one knows that they're doing this. They're not giving towards an adoption. That's not what they think they're doing. And yet over and over, God would provide. So here's the question we get all the time. Why on earth, Dave and Becky, do you save and plan and prepare and then go and leave your other kids to go get children in faraway countries? And a lot of times people ask, is it to rescue them? Now, there is some truth to that. If you've ever been in an overseas orphanage, we have a huge relationship with an orphanage in Mexico called Grace Children's Home. And we've been going there since before we had our first public service. And by the way, uh, at last count, here's the amazing things God has done. We would go there at least once a year, the first about three or four years. And then after that, it really got a hold of our church people's heart and we started going multiple times a year. And that led to this. A year ago, May, one of our families moved from San Jose. He was born here, she was born here. They had three biological children. They moved from San Jose to about a mile away from the orphanage for the express purpose of adopting a sibling set of four teenage girls. 
So they're a year into that process. Another family has adopted three and is now adopting two more from that same orphanage. Another guy uh, and his wife just adopted a girl from that orphanage. I've told our orphanage director down there, he's a close friend of mine, I said, you better look out, like we're just gonna clean out your orphanage. It's just amazing what God has done. So why do you go to this? Is it to rescue them? Well, if you've ever been overseas or to a Mexican orphanage or somewhere else, you might look at that and say, yeah, there's some truth to that. I wouldn't want my children living in that situation. Some of the orphanages there, the nannies are doing the best they can. But it's a very, very, very strange thing to walk into a room about this size filled with children. And here's how loud it is. Ready? There's babies in here. You know why the babies aren't crying? Because they figured out no one comes when I cry. No one comes when I cry, so I'm going to stop crying. That's a weird thing to be in an orphanage with lots of children and it's quiet because no one's fussing and crying. How do babies express their need? They cry. I'm hungry. I need to be picked up. I got something going on on the backside I need to dealt with, right? Help. And to go to an orphanage and have none of that, it's a really sickening feeling. So is there rescue involved? There is rescue involved. But rescue is not enough. We're glad to have them away from there, but think of how different it is that we're not there to rescue them, we're there to adopt them. Let me paint a picture for a second. Imagine that you are in a burning building. I don't think there's a soul in this room that can survive being in a burning building for long, right? That's not a gift we possess. You're helpless to save yourself and a hero comes in, rescues you out of the burning building and it collapses seconds after you walk out. Now, you would be eternally grateful for the rescue that you received from this hero, correct? But you probably wouldn't think about that person every day for the rest of your life. You see, rescue doesn't do that. Adoption does. Why? Because adoption is family. Adoption is forever. So if you think about back to that rescue scenario, here's what you might do. You might celebrate and pause your life and call out the day of your rescue and remember it every year for the rest of your life. You might invite your hero and his family to come and, and celebrate with you. You might even on that hero's birthday make a big deal about it. But you wouldn't think about your hero every single day for the rest of your life. Think about why God sent his son. Did God send Jesus to save us? Absolutely. But is that all? No. He called, he, he sent him to save us, but also to adopt us, to welcome us into his family. Think about it. If you go to church on Christmas and Easter, what are you doing? You're celebrating the day of the birth of your hero. You're celebrating the day that you were rescued on, uh, when he rose from the dead. And yet here we are a few weeks after Easter and we're still worshiping. We're still celebrating, we're still talking about it. Why? Because we're family. We've been adopted into God's family. When I see those pictures where Becky is holding two terrified children being handed suddenly to these two white people that smell different, sound different, feel different, everything about us feels different than what they're used to and they're utterly terrified, we already can see the future. We already know where this goes. 
We go, man, we have some hard days ahead of us. In fact, I'll tell you right now, if I say anything crazy, I just blame it on sleep deprivation. One of the things we've never, ever would have guessed, and if God had told us in advance, we would have said no, is that for the last two years and, and a few weeks, my wife and I have had probably uh, about five to 10 nights where we haven't had Everly, our daughter, screaming her head off for anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour and a half, two hours in the middle of the night. We have amazing days with our daughter. She is loving, she's connecting, she's doing so incredible in all these different ways. We have horrendous nights. I know all of you wanna give me advice on how to get children to sleep. You can do that, but I have nine kids. I mean, we have tried everything three times. And we continue to cry out and pray, and we've learned a prayer afresh in this season. God, give me today, give me this hour, my daily bread. I would talk with my friends who are 23 and they have their first child, and they go, oh, I'm so sleepy, my infant isn't sleeping well. And I go, yeah, I remember those days. So when you're 23 and your infant isn't sleeping well, when three o'clock hits, you feel a little bit tired, a little bit sluggish. But when you're in your mid-40s, you know what it feels like? It feels like a mule kicked you in the side of the head. Like you just want to go crawl up in the fetal position anywhere, whether it's socially appropriate or not, and just sleep. You're just exhausted at all times. So that's the journey that, that we are on. When I look at that picture, though, and I see my wife holding, holding our two most recent little babies, I just go, wow, that day, think about it, this day 10 years ago, it changed the life of the people in that picture forever. For the rest of our lives, there won't be a day that goes by that my daughter Cassie doesn't think about me as her dad and about Becky as her mom. And there's, there's not a day that goes by I don't think about my daughter Cassie. Parents, do you ever stop thinking about your kids? My oldest is only 21. I know if they're 43, 60, I'll never stop thinking about them. They will be on my mind all the time. And when Jesus came, he came to save. He came to rescue. That was utterly needed. We were helpless to rescue ourselves. There's no orphan that's going to get themselves out of that situation. But he did so much more than he came to rescue us. He came to adopt us into um, his family. So Christian, let me just say this. This is our story. The things I'm talking about here, this is our story. Like we, we live this. We get this. We understand this at a very intimate detail. Galatians chapter 4 says this. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Do you see Christmas and Easter celebration just merged right together in these two verses? You want to know why we celebrate at Christmas and Easter? Someone who's in the Silicon Valley has no idea what Christians celebrate. Here it is right here. This is it. This is the Christmas story and this is the Easter story. And this reality in these two short verses has changed every day for the rest of my life. I will never stop thinking about my rescuer. I will never stop thinking about my father. I will never stop thinking about uh, my brother, as it says that Jesus is to Christians. Um, let me do this. Let me say a word of prayer. 
and then we will uh, wrap up. And um, rumor has it I get to preach next hour. So, all right. If you lock the doors on me and I'm not let back in, I will receive that as, uh, as an indication that it didn't go well this hour. Let's pray. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's right. So, um, so the model we have for Foster the Bay is this: that um, that as one family steps forward to to do foster care, that we would surround them with a community of four families or four individuals to come around them and be what what we call support friends. And so what that looks like, um, like we got to experience that as an adopted family without any program telling us to, 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 to do that. So, um, so for instance, when we um, were trying to raise money, we had people helping us. When we um, first brought our kids home, uh, groceries would show up at our door, right? Just without asking. Um, and, uh, and so what we said with Foster the Bay was, let's, let's structure that. Let's actually say that you're not gonna do this alone. There's this, there's this phrase I learned in foster care. By the way, once again, sufficiency of the, whole, of, of, of the word of God and sufficiency of the Holy Spirit to lead and guide a church. Every single year that I preached on, on Orphan Care Sunday, I always asked God, God, I, I really, have a heart for foster care as well. Is this the year we should rope foster care into it? And always it was domestic adoption and international adoption. Those were our two main focuses. And um, so I, I, I was like this open-handed with foster care. And, um, and in that year that we did orphan care, uh, I prayed once again and one whole week was on foster care. And three days after I preached the sermon on foster care, what it was, foster is a little bit like orphanage in, US, in, 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 the, in the US. The kids in there may not be technically orphans, meaning they, they don't have parents either alive or available, but temporarily, they're in that vulnerable state of what an orphan is. Three days after I preached on foster care, in a 15 minute span, I'm trying to walk into another meeting, I get a phone call from a woman who says, I was in the foster care system, I would like to step in and lead a charge in helping our church get its head around foster care. I say, wow, that is awesome. I hang up the phone, thank you, Lord. 15 minutes later, I get a call from another woman, I've always had foster care on my heart. Is there anything I could do to step forward? I'm willing to be a worker, I'll roll up my sleeves and do whatever's needed. So I just said, pastors are just like operators, right? I just go, you need to call them. You tell me what's going on with the spirit and we'll do it. So they got together and met and that began to form our summer, our summer groups around foster care. So, so back, to, back to your thing. But we had no concept of how to formalize any of this. We didn't have a desire to do any of that. And then God's stirring up at another church what it would look like to sort of band together and get Christians together to sort of formalize this. And that's when we came up with, with um, again, not cutting edge or new, but just the idea, we're not just gonna call foster families. There's an expression in the foster care community, it's called one and done. Many, many people, this is nationwide, many, many people, I forget the stat, but a large, like a vast majority of people who enter foster care, they go through, in our county, um, it is uh, seven weeks of pre-approval classes, um, it's paperwork, it's getting fingerprinted, it's all this different hassle in your life to get just ready to receive a kid. And then they take one placement, one foster placement, and they never take another placement. 
So it's called one and done. Like you just go to a social worker and you go, what does one and done mean in foster care? And they'll be like, yeah, that's the fact that most people take one placement and never do it again. Why? Because it's so hard. It's so emotionally difficult. It's so challenging to, 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 to do this. When we first presented this, Philip took our vision video, which you'll see next hour. He took our vision video to a room full of 30 Santa Clara County Department of Family and Services uh, workers in downtown San Jose, showed the vision video, and he said there wasn't a dry eye in the room, and the leader of it said, we need to show this to all of our higher-ups. Here's why this has us so excited. That that four support friends coming around that person, that's what will make all the difference. Now, as a Christian, we go, that's not really what will make all the difference. We know that God has to be involved. But that piece is what's missing. And if that's not there, um, it, it, is, it is setting someone up for failure to, 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 to not have that. So imagine how much pastors plan and prep for Christmas service and Easter service, two kind of big days where we expect a lot of non-Christians to be there. Every minute is already filled with all kinds of things we've been working on for weeks. Um, because of the timing of it, and because we had four families step forward, here I am altering Christmas service because we needed 16 families to step forward to be support families for, for these foster families pronto. Like, we needed that right now. So I altered Christmas service to just say, look at what the Spirit's doing in our midst, and how are we going to respond to that? Yeah, so, so that's the basic math formula is, is, you know, and here's our heart. Catch this, if every church in the Silicon Valley raised up just one family, we would have more than double the families needed to, to meet the need of, of kids. So in other words, there's something like 300 kids right now needing a home. There's something like 700 plus churches in Santa Clara County. So what you don't know is that um, maybe a church will raise up one family Maybe it will raise up four. Maybe God will just keep going, and, and a lot of people will, will step into that. And so that's where an orphan care culture, you know, many churches already have an orphan care culture. Sometimes it's just a seedling. Sometimes it's grown a little bit and it has some different things, but this is an opportunity to kind of give expression to that. Yeah. If any of you ever have questions, I can answer shorter than that. That was a really long answer to a short question. All right, let me pray. God, I pray your blessing. showed that video last week at our church. Um, the guy, in fact, that you hear talking on that video and who produced the video came through our youth group at Valley Church. He and his wife both did. So I've done lots of service with Jared uh, and exciting to see that list of churches. We didn't make the list. I kind of chewed him out about that. I said, where's our name? You know. Uh, but anyway, it's kind of neat. We were just, I was just talking with someone at the break saying, uh, you know, how good it is to get churches together and we should do more partnership together. And there's a lot of like-minded churches around uh, that, that have that, um, that heart. So great to be with you again uh, this morning. Um, let, me, let me say this, our, uh, our church typically goes through books of the Bible. That's sort of our bread and butter of how we teach and how we kind of walk through. And um, we, we decided about a year ago to tackle this little book called Romans. Uh, so uh, I have been eyeball deep into being thoroughly confused for the last year uh, as I study and just mine the riches of Romans. It's been really, really incredible. And I want to steer your your heart and your mind to one verse. Uh, if you want to turn there, you can. You don't have to. That's not our passage. Our passage is Ephesians 5, if you want to get a jump on it. I know some of you are planners, and you're like, just tell me where I'm supposed to be in five minutes. That's where we'll be in five minutes. 
But Romans 15 verse 7 says this. It says, therefore, welcome one another as the Lord Jesus Christ welcomed you to the glory of God. And the word welcome that's used there is this word. It's proslambano. Proslambano is a Greek word that we lose something with welcome because we might think in America that welcome means give a quick handshake, give a smile, say hello, and move on to the next person. But proslambano, when it says welcome one another, it says proslambano one another in the same way Christ proslambanoed you. It means this. It means to come alongside, to take in and receive, and to grant access to one's heart. So we've adopted some children, and some of my favorite pictures are at San Francisco Airport because it's like the delivery room of a new baby when you're, when you're, when you're adopting a child. And what's so amazing is we have these pictures, the very first moment that my older children are welcoming, proslambano, are welcoming in a new child into their family. And what's so powerful is the first time it's kind of novel and they don't really know what they're getting into. But after the first time they realize, wow, a younger sister gets into your stuff, breaks your stuff, messes up your room, and also takes more toys from you at Christmas time because mom and dad's budget have to spread around. So it's even more powerful when they've already been through the novelty of it once and then it happens a second time and a third time and they proslambano, they, they welcome in. And, and that's one of the amazing things. We all, we all long to see beauty in our kids that's beyond just our natural affection for them. And I look at that and I go, wow, that's, that's what it looks like to welcome into God's family someone who's been welcomed in by Christ. I love what we just sang. Spencer and the team, thank you for that. We just sang what it's like, how Jesus welcomes us in. And it was a great personal cost, right? Arms are wide open. I want to welcome you. If you're at church for the first time in a long time, because you missed Easter, maybe you thought it was Easter, uh, <laughs> welcome. Let me tell you the Christian message. The Christian message is this, that God the Father is, is waiting to have you turn back from your sin and repent. And he's waiting with, with, open, with open arms to, to receive. And that's, that's all of our story, and, and we're excited about that. I bring up welcome one another as Christ welcomed you for the glory of God, because that verse, even though it was really talking about the church, it overlays onto this topic of adoption and this whole idea of adoption. As we talk about adoption and orphan care today, I want your brain to kind of go ahead and free flow back and forth because so much of what I say works on a physical, natural level, this world level of adoption, and it flows right into non-temporal things, eternal things, the more weighty things, and our spiritual adoption. So you'll, you'll kind of see that as we go. One of the profound truths that... Um, for whatever reason, God just keeps this on the frontal lobes of my brain, is that every single person you ever lay eyes on has a deep longing to be delighted in. We are wired for connection. We have a deep need to be together in community. And we all know this. Ephesians 1 says this, it says, God decided in advance to adopt us into his family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. Listen to this next part. 
This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Some of us have church backgrounds that maybe we think of God as, um, as a judge primarily. And he's stern and he's harsh and he's going to look at us through a legal lens. The doctrine of adoption, as you really wade into it and see the biblical lens of what it talks about, shows these kinds of verses that actually gave God great delight to welcome the sinners that we just sang about. Those who are trapped in their sin, those who don't know how to leave it behind. There's a simple truth I want you to remember this morning, and it's this. That adopted equals wanted. I don't know how it is right now, but I know growing up, I have three brothers. And sort of a a verbal slam that one of the brothers might say to one another, if we were angry with them, or even if we were just kind of ribbing them a little bit, is, oh yeah? Well, you were adopted, right? And it was a put down. And you think about like, well, you're adopted as, as, a, as a shameful thing, as sort of a, a way to sort of cut at someone. It's a tease. You didn't fit in. You weren't wanted. You're not naturally born. What I love about Christ and, and the redemptive work that goes on in him is that he takes, he takes words and concepts even, and he just has this way of redeeming them. So when you think about adopted, if you were adopted in here this morning, your heart rate's probably elevated a little bit. It kind of feels like a rub that I just put, put up there that it's a tease and a slam and you don't fit in. And it, it may stir up some mm, sort of angst feelings in you. Here's the beauty of the Christian message. Here's what has been accomplished because of Christ is that it redeems the concept of adoption To be adopted is our prize. It's not our shame. When you think about adopted, we're we're no longer ashamed of that title. We no longer feel unwanted or unclaimed. We no longer hide the truth. Instead, it says this to us. We were chosen. We were delighted in. God left his rightful home, his rightful place, and at great cost, through no help of ours, came to us when we couldn't come to him. He made plans to come and to welcome us, proslumbano, to give access to his heart and to come alongside us and to take us in. Do you see, Christian, that we ought to proclaim our adoption from the rooftops? If, everyone's, if anyone ever were to say that as a slam to me, yeah, well, you're adopted, I'd say, that's right. That's the best thing I have going about my life is I've been adopted into God's family. If you have chosen to follow Christ, you're adopted. And you are the full heir of the Father's inheritance. And you have brothers and sisters worldwide and through the centuries. And right now, you are the delight of the Father's attention. There are some powerful truths to our spiritual adoption. I'm so thrilled that this church is going to take some time out and put the spotlight on orphan care. Because in 2000, I think 2005, once in a while what I've done is this. I've made it my habit every other year to read through the Bible. And on the off year, I linger and I take time and I do other things. But sometimes God has just sort of nudged me to read the whole Bible with a certain lens. 
and I think it was 2005, it may have been earlier, but I had this sense I should read the Bible with this lens. And I would invite you to do this sometime. Read Genesis to Revelation with the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner. Think about those three categories of people and then read through the whole Bible. You will be utterly astounded at how from the very beginning to the very end, God has um, absolutely provided for and called special attention to the most vulnerable. I was a college pastor at a church called Valley Church in Cupertino where I was on staff for 10 years as a youth pastor. It utterly transformed our college ministry. After reading that year, God led me to understand that a mile away, De Anza College has the largest, largest population of international students west of the Mississippi River at the time. They go over to different countries and they recruit for this, you know, college called De Anza College, which to us is just some JC down the road. But to them, it's like, you know, coming to the promised land. They're coming to De Anza College. <laughs> So Valley Church has this sports complex. We have tennis courts and volleyball courts and a big field and all of that. So I worked it out with the faculty. They have three full-time faculty at the time at De Anza College just for the international student population. I said, God's heart is for the foreigner, for the alien. In fact, here's a funny story. Amanda, Jared's wife, voiceover of the video we just saw, I said one time in college group, I said, I wish I had a bumper sticker that said, I love aliens. And she made me a bumper sticker that says, I love aliens. <laughs> because God's heart is for the foreigner, right? They're vulnerable. So we altered our college ministry at the time to welcome in 300 students at a time every fall come and they do an, a week-long orientation at De Anza College. Those of you who've been through college or are in college, how boring does that sound? I mean, that's a rough week, right? I mean, it's just lots of school faculty showing you stuff. So at the very end of the week, we would provide this large meal and teach them about this American sport called football. And we would invite in. So we had about 20 churches in the area that would come. And if you were a Japanese student and you wanted to just stick with Japanese students, we had a Japanese Christian fellowship church that would come. And so they would get to come and kind of be with other Japanese Americans here in, in America. And, and, uh, and so we had them from all over Asia and South America and, and Scandinavia and uh, as far away as Canada uh, that would come as international <laughs> students to De Anza College, the promised land. And, uh, and we would feed them. We would introduce them to Christians. And we would just say, if you know the, 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 the lay of the land, and you have a heart for other people, you can be a massive blessing to other people. And so we would go and pick them up at the airport. And if, if you're ever the first person to be met in a foreign country, there's like an imprint on, on you that they become friends for life. So to this day on New Year's, I expect to get a phone call from a handful of students who are now through Danza College and on to their life, this is years ago, and they will call me and they will thank me and they will appreciate me and they'll be my friends because why? I stood there with a sign with my son uh, at the airport and I was the very first person they met in America. So the word of God has tremendous power to stir our lives and to teach us and to show us these different things. And to understand orphan care through the lens of scripture not because some guy's passionate about it not because an organization has formed 
but because it ties directly into the gospel, hear me, it will empower you to care about orphans long past this next two-month window that you're putting emphasis on it. When you root orphan care to the gospel, it actually lets you have sustained energy. People all the time just go, how have you adopted these children? How do you do it? Why do you do it? All of that. I, I always say the same sort of thing. I say, I have a tremendous wife and I have a great God. And I stay motivated by it because when I sing songs about how Christ welcomed me, I'm reminded of what I'm to do. And of course it's hard. Of course it's gonna cost. Jesus gave up his blood for us. So it empowers you to, to keep at it and stay at it long past a short period of time. What happens is we feel really bad for the kids and so we get stirred up. We go, someone should really do something. And so we might do a little something, but that doesn't sustain, does it? I mean, we've all felt bad for a lot of different things, but we're not actively doing anything about it. Truth be told, there's so many inputs now we could feel bad about the whole world's needs and then not do a single thing because we're overwhelmed by that. That's just overwhelming to, to, to have that. Ephesians chapter 5. Turn there now if you haven't turned there yet. Let me give you one more simple thing to write down. If you're taking notes and want to jot this down. Most every person that I've ever met thinks that babies are valuable. Thinks that babies are wanted. We live in a nation, I grew up around here, so we live in a nation that says babies equal value. We, we want babies. So there should be no category of an unwanted baby, of an unwanted child. And yet your brain is already saying, but wait a minute, there is that category. I've heard that term before. Unwanted pregnancy and unwanted children are terms that we hear about. God impressed this idea in my mind uh, almost a decade ago. Our church is called Neighborhood Bible Church. And so we are keenly focused on that neighborhood. We will welcome people from anywhere else, but we realize God has put us in a specific place. God has put you in this location, in this time frame for a specific reason. If you work at a job and you're in a cubicle, God has you at that cubicle for a specific reason. No one else can go minister and shepherd and be a witness and be a light in that cubicle. You can. If you attend a school and go to that class and sit next to that person, God is sovereign over these things. So God allowed us to take over a space in a neighborhood. And I just really prayed. I said, God, what do you want us to do here? We'll continue to lift up the name of Jesus generally, but is there anything specifically you want us to do? And over the course of time, this is what, this is what kept coming back to me. What if churches in general, but this church in specific, became known in this neighborhood as the place where unwanted children became beloved sons and daughters. What then? What would be the result if this church had that reputation? What would it look like? If people saw this and knew that this was true, it would do a few things. People in this neighborhood 
they would, they would have pause at an abortion clinic because they would say, wait a minute, I've heard about a place where there's no such thing as an unwanted baby. Maybe I'd pause and think this through. Maybe there's someone at that church I could talk to and reach out to. I think also it would, it would threaten in a really healthy, good way our social workers who care for kiddos down at the foster care places in San Jose. I think it would put orphanage workers out of work in other places. I think also people would stop and take notice. We're to welcome one another as Christ welcomed us. Why? To the glory of God. If our motive here is not to save the planet from unwanted babies, but rather to glorify God and, and the way that will be accomplished is we are going to value what he values and he values people. That people will walk into our midst and they will look at the love and the acceptance and the sacrifice and the perseverance and the sheer magnitude of love going on in this place that they will stop and think to themselves, there's something supernatural going on here. So their eyes would get off of one another and they would look heavenward and say, this must be something that God is doing, not individuals are doing. What if churches became the place where unwanted babies became beloved sons and daughters? Today what I want to do is I want to present to you a problem that's going on in our world. I want to share with you what's at stake and I want to give you some concepts and thoughts maybe about what our response could be. First of all, the problem, there is an orphan crisis going on in our world right now. And it's far away, and it's as local as jumping on 87 and heading downtown to a handful of buildings. I'm not trying to be alarmist or sensationalize it at all. I'm just being truthful that there is a crisis going on. In fact, crisis is probably a gross understatement. You might be sitting here thinking, well, if that's true, how come I don't know about it? How come I don't hear about it? Here's why. It's because it's hard. It's because it's so incredibly common. And it's because it's being covered up. Ephesians chapter 5 says this. Starting in verse 11. It says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, for, and, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Today I want to expose and make visible darkness that is going on in our world. I want to stir awake the sleepy. I want to energize you who are awake to this in a fresh way. I want to instill some urgency in this. And I want to show you that God's will is in plain sight for us. 
Imagine the headlines that would occur if a jet airliner that left San Jose Airport crashed on the way to LA. We would all hear about that in the news. It would make the news. A great book that I highly recommend is a book called Holden in Our Gospel by Rich Stearns. And he says this, and I'll just read it directly. Now imagine 100 jet airliners crashing. Not one. The total number it would kill is 26,500. Think of the pandemonium that this would create across the world as heads of state, parliaments, and congresses convene to grapple with the nature and the causes of this tragedy. 100 airliners crashing. Think about the avalanche of media coverage that it would ignite around the globe as reporters shared the shocking news and tried to communicate the implications for the world. Air travel would no doubt grind to a halt as governments shut down the airlines and panicked air travelers canceled their trips. The National Transportation Safety Board and perhaps the FBI and CIA and local law enforcement agencies and their international equivalents would mobilize investigations and delegates and they would, they would put whatever manpower was required to understand what happened and to prevent this from ever happening again. Now imagine that the very next day, 100 more planes crashed. And the day after that, 100 more planes crashed. And so on and so forth. Here's the point Rich Stearns is making. Today, while we go through our Sunday, the equivalent of 100 airlines full of people, 26,000 people, children, will die. And they will die from a very specific, for a very specific reason, because they have lack of basic nutrients and access to clean water. So that staggering number hits us between the eyes when we pause and think about it. This is happening every day. It will happen again tomorrow. Friday, if this comes to your mind again as an airline flies overhead, it will happen on Friday. And yet we hear nothing about this. Why? Here's why. Because it's hard. It's common. And it's being covered up. Let me shock you with a saying that is found in newsrooms across the country. This is from a book by a journalist named Susan Moeller called Compassion Fatigue. She writes this, in the news business, one dead fireman in Brooklyn is worth five English bobbies who are worth 50 Arabs who are worth 500 Africans. As terrible as that sounds, that's what she says is true. So in terms of what is newsworthy, look at this formula. One fireman is the equivalent of five police officers in England, which is the equivalent of 50 Arabs dying, which is the equivalent of 100 Africans dying. When I first shared this stat that week, I just looked up on Google News 
and I looked at page one of Google News, and then I scrolled page two, page three, page four. And Boko Haram, which is a terrorist organization at that time, that week had slaughtered hundreds of Muslim Africans. And do you know where it was? It was on page four of Google News. On page one, it was, it was stuff that was close to us. So why is it that our compassion for others seems to be directly correlated to whether they are people close to us? And when I say close, I mean socially, geographically, economically, culturally, ethnically. Here's what I think. I think things aren't newsworthy in the orphan care world because they aren't our kids. If those were our kids and we felt a connection to them, it would become newsworthy. Those who are struggling far away hits us less than those who are struggling near us. But is this really what Jesus wants? Jesus tells the story of a good Samaritan. I think at heart, we are all the Pharisee that goes on the other side of the street and says, not my problem. I don't even want to really look at that. I've got things to do. I would love to help. I care. I just don't have the time. I care, but that's not my calling. Jesus says that to love God and then neighbor as yourself is the greatest commandment. That if you want to boil down all of your study of the Old Testament and summarize the New Testament, we know this, right? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. There's nothing new. Generosity and joyful open-handedness is to characterize God's people. There are more than 2,000 verses that could kind of fall in this category. Let me just blitz you with a couple right now to kind of get our heads around it. Proverbs 29, the righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. Proverbs 14 says, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his, make, his maker, but he who is generous to the needy, needy honors him. In Deuteronomy, it says, if there is a poor man among, among your brothers in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend him whatever he needs. In Matthew, quite simply, freely you have received, freely give. Proverbs 19, he who is kind to the poor, oh, sorry, uh, he who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward him who has done uh, for, for what he has done. Uh, the Matthew 25 passage, Jesus picks up on this theme of going, um, going so far as to say that when you help someone who's poor, you're helping him. Matthew 25, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty. You gave me drink. I was a stranger. You welcomed me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. In his inaugural sermon, Luke chapter 4, you know the story well probably. Jesus goes to the scroll. He opens up to Isaiah and he reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
right at the start of his public ministry, he sets a tone for those who are most vulnerable, the poor and the captives and the blind and the oppressed. The truth is that anyone can come to Jesus. But from scriptures, we see the poor, captive, blind, oppressed, the orphan, the widow, the foreigner, as getting special mention. Could it be that they are highlighted precisely because we tend toward keeping them at bay? We tend toward keeping those who have no voice continuing to have no voice. For those who pretend not to notice, listen to these stern warnings. Proverbs 21.13 says this. It says, if a man shuts his ears to the cry of the poor, he too will cry out and not be answered. And in James 4, it says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. When you begin to open your eyes to the need and really engage with it, it begins to crush you, doesn't it? I mean, what is a single life worth? We tend to want to do a pharisaical thing and say, well, come on, how far do we take this? I mean, really, who is my neighbor, right? We do the Pharisee thing. We want to justify ourselves and say, I'm not sure we can meet all the needs, so maybe we won't do any. Here's the crazy thing about the day and time we live in. Because of air travel, technology, our neighbor has become global. We can know about the needs in an orphanage on the other side of the planet. We can actually send funds and go to people in a matter of hours if a natural disaster were to hit this afternoon. So our neighbor has grown immensely in terms of our ability to meet needs. Different kinds of needs motivate different kinds of people. We've adopted internationally five times, and so people sometimes come to us and say, um, how come you guys didn't start right here? Aren't there needy kids here in California? And I say, absolutely there are. Do you have a burden for kids in California? <laughs> well, no, but you should. That's what, that's what the message is, right? But, but the reality is, if that's what motivates you, if that's what stirs you, then, then yes, I'll, I'll help you do that even. I know of specific ways to, to jump in and help with that. And some people will say, why would you ever spend time with, with foster care here or, or, or orphanages here? Because here, at least they're fed, at least they're protected, at least they have some rights as Americans. Over in other countries, they are dying, they are being mistreated, they're being, they're being terrorized. So you got to go to the least of these. So I say, oh, so do you have a heart for the international person? Go to them. So it's not either or, it's both and, right? And if people have a heart for someone who's right here in their own neighborhood, great, start here. Do it here, we need that. And if people have a heart elsewhere, great, go be a neighbor to someone else around the world. The passage we looked at this morning says, making the best use of your time because the days are evil and then in verse 17 it says do not be foolish understand what the will of the lord is 
So if that's the problem, what is at stake? Why does this message matter? Here's what's at stake. God's name. God's glory is at stake. Think about this sobering fact. I'm a pastor, so I hold a a specific position. How will it be looked upon by those decades from now about what pastors in this area did for the orphan crisis going on on, on their watch? How did Christians act? What did churches do to step in? One of the things we have at our church is this word share. Share means a lot of different things, but it primarily means these two things. Anyone ever hear that as a Christian you should share your faith? Right? What's the churchy word for that? Evangelism. Right? People around here, they have no idea. I'd like to evangelize you. Cool. How much does that cost? You know, like they don't know what that even means. Right? But evangelism is just sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. All of us bear witness to Jesus whether we like it or not. Right? We just do. We're evangelists for our favorite restaurants. We go and we talk about it. We're excited about it. We're evangelists for our favorite band, for our favorite place to go, for the car we like, whatever. So we are to share the way to God in the gospel. But the second thing it means is this, that we are to, as Christians, we are to consider other people's needs as more important than our own. We're to put other people first. We're to die to ourselves so that others. All of Romans 14 and 15, by the way, is all about the stronger in faith making way for the younger Christian and giving up rights. So a second part of share, when our church hears the word share, they know I'm talking specifically about sharing their time, their lives, their energy, their home, their stuff, their money, the talents that God has gifted them with, and their health. Parents, doesn't it delight you when your children unprompted from you, unmotivated by some promise you, 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 you might give to them if they just share on their own. I spend a lot of time at playgrounds. We have a large family, so we make use of our tax dollars. We go to city parks and the beach. That's our big, that's our big outing all the time. And Taco Bell. If we're going to eat, we're eating at Taco Bell. So we're at the park all the time. I've never, ever seen a parent have their kids share with someone else and go, how dare you? You keep both of those popsicles for yourself. What did I teach you about selfishness? I don't care where they are on the religious spectrum. Man, it delights the parent's heart when their kids share unprompted. You didn't have to give that up, but you saw that kid had none, and so you just gave some. I mean, it is the most basic, simple thing to give honor and glory and delight to the parents when your children just share. I know what the teens are thinking. They're like, I'm going to get on mom and dad's good side and do some sharing. Maybe it'll pay off for me later on. (laughs) We've been really active in trying to be intentional about how to bless our neighborhood at our church. And... I just have a sense from, I read, your, read through your website last night and uh, I love how clear it is, some of the values that you hold and some of the reviews on Google and just kind of fun to kind of get a sense of, of who you, all five of you, by the way, churches just don't get reviewed very often. I think we have four, so you guys have us by one, you know. Um, 
but I got a little heart, a little little sense of, of who you are. And um, you know, one of the things, if you ever start to engage with the poor, you realize that handouts feel really good in the short term for the giver and the receiver, but in the end it sours pretty quickly. People don't really want handouts. They, 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 want, they want to be able to, to figure out how to do this on their own. We have this expression, we work with an organization called Love Inc., Love in the Name of Christ. Rich Henderson, who heads that up, attends our church. And we have this metaphor around our church that says, you lift your end of the couch, I'll lift the other end of the couch. And here's what it means. If your neighbor says, hey, I've got a couch, I need to carry up two flights of stairs, can you come help me? We would immediately say, yeah, I get that. One person can't carry a couch all the way up. But imagine if you go over there and he says, where's your team? And you go, what do you mean, where's my team? Well, you've got to get this couch carried up the, the stairs. And I'm like, well, you know, aren't you going to help? <laughs> now, now, imagine if the next time he calls a month later and says, hey, I need help carrying that couch again. Can you come and could you bring a few people? I'm a little tired. So I'm like, okay. So I call and bring a few people. And this time he's sitting on the couch eating Cheetos. Right? I mean, at some point, I'm going to stop carrying the couch, and I'm going to become embittered against my neighbor. What I go is I do, I assess, and I say, wow, you have two broken legs and a bad heart and a bad back. You're not touching the couch. I'll get a team. We'll move the couch. Right? But if he's able-bodied, I'm going to come, and I'm going to say, you carry your end. I'll carry my end. This is how Christian charity works. This is how Christian compassion works. So you assess. There's all kinds of questions you might ask. Now, now get your head around this for a second. One of the things we ask so that we don't keep carrying the couch every single month is what part did you have in having this couch be down here when really it should have been up here? And are there some lifestyle changes that need to happen so you don't keep having to lean on other people to carry your couch? What about for those in our city, in Santa Clara County right now, who had absolutely no part in the predicament that they're in right now. They didn't mess up and have their couch be downstairs when really it should be upstairs. Let's take it a step further. What if they can't even spell the word couch? You know where I'm going with this? It's foster children. It's orphans in our midst. They had no, they, they, they did nothing to get themselves in a situation where they need help having their couch carried. They didn't even know how to spell the word couch. They are, they are the most vulnerable. So what should a Christian's response be to come and enter in and serve those who are most vulnerable? What's at stake is God's name. Perhaps this is why orphans get such a prominent place at the front of the line. It's not that other people and other categories aren't vulnerable. It's that some are most vulnerable. And when you read through the scriptures of widows and orphans and foreigners, they, they can be most taken advantage of. One of the interesting things is this. Whenever we say, hey, we're adopting, or hey, today, 10 years ago, we adopted a child. Everyone goes, woohoo, that's so great. You know who has mixed feelings about that? The adopted child. Every single adoption began with a tragedy, Right? So why does this kid need to be adopted? Well, because there was war in my country and everyone was just slaughtering each other. And both my parents died. Why does this kid need to be adopted? Well, because my, my family gave me up and I don't have the answers to that. I'm not sure why, but in some way, I guess I wasn't wanted. 
Why is this child up for adoption? Well, because because mom was raped. Why is this child up for adoption? Well, because dad's a drug dealer and he's incarcerated right now and he's not available to raise the child. Think about our adoption story, Christian. Who was stuck in the world's orphanage with no help of rescue? Whose story begins with tragedy? It's ours. Romans 1 through 3, I preached for months on ruin. Sin ruins us. We are stillborn. We're dead in our sins. We're blind. We're oppressed. We're shackled. So our own adoption story, our Christian adoption story, began with tragedy. Is there light and hope and healing and redemption? Praise God, yes, there is. But every adoption story begins with sin and tragedy. Let me just give you a category to think in. Be sensitive when you talk to people who are adopted. Get inside their world a little bit. And yes, it's great that God provided me a family. I've got mom and dad. But you know what? In my family, we have mom and dad that don't look like me. My wife has done an incredible job. Hair is a very important part to generally African culture, but specifically Ethiopian culture. And my wife, for months leading up to our adoption from Ethiopia, learned how to do her daughter's hair. And when we go out in public, we, we often get to interact with families and they say, how is her hair done so well? And it's because my wife took time to make sure that that was going on so, so she, could, she could, because my daughter Kaya has hair unlike anyone else's hair in the whole family. And sometimes we'll have black ladies come and offer little tips or little hints or, or say, hey, can, you know, if you ever want help with that, and they're coming alongside, they're helping us knowing that we're, some white people are doing the best we can with our hair. <laughs> you know, uh, John the Baptist preached Jesus and people got convicted. And after he preached Jesus and people got convicted, they said, what should we do? And John the Baptist said, get into some classes. No, he didn't say that. <laughs> Here's what he said. He said, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. When you think about this whole idea of sharing, it's gonna cost you something, isn't it? It's gonna cost you choice, it's gonna cost you uh, something to, to, to give away. Um, are we over time, Marcus? Okay, I really apologize. You guys listen very quickly, I guess, because uh, I, have a, I have a whole bunch more. Uh, listen, let me, let me wrap up with a video. I, I wanna show you a video. Um, this sermon concept turned into, uh, at the very start of something called Foster the Bay that I shared a little bit with about last, week, uh, last hour, um, it turned into a video concept that said basically that God has given us an umbrella. God has already put things in our hands, already put things in our disposal. Uh, that we can share and I'll let the video speak for itself but what it's going to do is it's going to give you sort of a a quick overview of some things that God led uh, people that now I think we have uh, I think we have something like 24 individuals who serve on this organization called Foster the Bay none of us are paid it's a nonprofit uh, from 18 different churches so one of the things that my elders have said when I first got invited to start Foster the Bay, I told them, I said, I pastor a church, 
I'm trying to do right by raising my family. I have nine children. I have one wife. That's how I like it. Uh, and I can't do Foster the Bay as a hobby. I don't have time to put into it as a hobby. Can we as a church rope this into our vision? And I said, I don't even know what this will look like yet, guys. But I said, I think it will mean me leaving Neighborhood Bible Church, I don't know, maybe six times a year, go preach at different churches. It will mean during my week, I will go meet with different people and, 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 and just try to get word out about this. And they joyfully said, yes, let's do that. So my time here is just, it's just a gift from the community, just saying this is really important. So thank you for receiving me. You're receiving uh, you know, time from one of the pastors at, at a local church because we really believe in it. I wanna show you this video, and this video was made before we did anything. Nothing was in existence yet. Uh, we're now in three counties, uh, and we're expanding to more counties. There are 11 counties around the Bay Area. We called it Foster the Bay from day one intentionally because we said Santa Clara County isn't the only place that has a, a, an orphan crisis with, with foster care. So I want you to watch this video and it will give you sort of my application. This is a way to, to step into, um, to be a part of things. So. Did that just skip past it? Let me, let me uh, grab control here for one second. Uh, no, that, that is the video, and it worked before. <laughs> 